0: Welcome to Web3 for Gen Z, a show where I interview Web3 leaders to talk about their experiences building the internet of the future and ask them for the advice for Gen Z. I'm your host, Aryan and my guest for today is Brian McCoro. The best way to describe Brian would be to call him a finance wizard, zero-knowledge maximalist, and a teacher at heart. Brian is the head of finance at MENA Foundation, the corporation that supports MENA Protocol, which is the world's lightest blockchain. Mina uses a technology called Zero Knowledge Proofs to design an entire blockchain that is and always will be 22 kilobytes in size. And Brian and I will get into how the technology works and what's important. Before Mina, Brian held a number of roles spanning industries like teaching, investment banking, and private equity. He graduated from Duke University in 2009 and did his master's at Stanford Business School in 2018. You can find Brian on Twitter at Brian Makoro. Just as a reminder, Brian is not giving financial, legal, investment, or tax advice. Please do your own research. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, hello, Brian. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I want to start by just asking you for a quick overview of your background. Could you just give a brief overview on how your working experience began since you graduated from college?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. I've definitely had a long and extensive career that's ranged across areas of finance, in many ways, different modalities as well. And it really started graduating at Duke. I was an economics major there, and I graduated into the Great Recession, which tends to give everyone a little bit more perspective very early on and immediately after school decided to join Teach for America and spent 2 years as a math teacher in DC great experience really enjoyed my time and all the time I was still thinking about my economics major and how to sort of use that skill set and apply it to my day-to-day work and Ended up joining the investment banking program at JP Morgan, uh, where I did sort of the classic IB two years, a lot of M&A, a a lot of deals, great training experience, a really great sort of foundational experience. And following that, worked in the operations side of private equity. So worked at a large corporate in New York known as iHeartMedia, doing corporate M&A, corporate development, really got to get my hands dirty in some of the more complex capital balance sheet management aspects of private equity, but within the company and also work on several deals from ranging from venture capital, corporate venture capital deals, where we're investing in ad tech companies that are coming up in with really cool technology to doing acquisitions of hundreds of radio stations across the US. And so it was really a a really diverse experience. And all the while, that was sort of my introduction to private equity and solely sort of found my way over to the investment side working at a firm based in London, doing emerging markets, private equity, a firm called Helios. And so I did that actually before and after my MBA, which I did at Stanford. And that really led me to understand some of the core issues with, particularly in, in the payments in emerging markets, financial services, financial access. And so when I first came to across crypto, it was around my time at Stanford and it really clicked for me. And it piqued my interest and solely As I sort of left the private equity field, looked at the opportunity within crypto to really solve some of the issues that everyday people face and ended up joining Mina as I sort of found more out about the ZK proof world, ZK snarks. And that's where I am now.
0: There's so much to unpack in terms of all the different (laughs) industries you worked at before I jump into all the experiences, just a quick elaboration on the transition from Helios to Mina. Did you first come across the field of crypto while you were doing due diligence at Helios looking at financial access? Or was there some outside person, outside experience that led you into this field?
1: I think where I first came across crypto was actually when I was at Stanford. And I was at Stanford, I think in the sort of the 2016 crypto boom around then. And we it was really a hotbed for a lot of the activity, particularly around the early Ethereum develop a- applications on top a protocol. A lot of that was happening in the Bay Area. And that's where I really started to unpack, not just crypto as blockchain really distributed ledger, but more crypto as application and its ability to tackle a multitude of problems. That was when my interest was peaked, And I think over the years between 2016 and 2020, like many f- folks, Slowly, kind of dug deeper into the rabbit hole and and started to understand not only some of the applications but some of the toolings and what it looks like to actually build in the space. And so, around twenty twenty is when I really started to dive deep around DeFi during the, the classic DeFi summer. And that was, yeah. I think, that was the real aha moment. What, which was not that DeFi is the end all be all solution for you know it has it has its own problems, but I think that there's this innovation that happens in the space that really the nature of blockchain, the nature of decentralization and the na- nature of a user-owned internet really unlocks a lot of potential for the technology, but for applications even beyond the space.
0: Oh, that totally makes sense. So the the onboarding for you was spread out from 2016 to 2020. Any classes that you took at business school maybe, or was it more reading articles and discovering things by yourself?
1: Yeah. So I think by nature of being at Stanford, we I believe we had the One of, if not the first uh, blockchain, formalized blockchain class, and we had a slate of the who's who of crypto project Mm -hmm. leaders coming in and speaking about their projects. And so it was a, a really great time to learn because it was really at the beginning of a lot of the innovation in the Ethereum ecosystem, but also on other, other layer ones. And that was... The sort of entry point for me. The rest of the learning, I would say, really, a lot of it's self led. And, and I have, I'm lucky to have a number of friends, you know, really good friends started a, started a company right out of school in the blockchain space. A couple others entered directly from business school into the blockchain space. So I'm, I've been lucky to have a pretty solid network within Web3. Separate from that, though. A lot of learning because, you know, Web3 is such a broad space, right? There's, you know, there's DeFi, there's Metaverse, there's NFTs, there's zero knowledge. There's just so many, there's so many technologies that are being pushed forward that the bulk of the learning is self-led. It's digging in, learning about a new tool or new technology or new innovation and and really digging into it, whether it's desktop research, Twitter, Reddit, reading white papers. There's a a lot of ways to learn, but I, I definitely think it's still one of those spaces that really you know it benefits you to sort of dig a little deeper.
0: I, I totally agree with you. A class in 2016 at Stanford is probably definitely one of the first classes for Princeton especially the first class that was taught on blockchain was actually this spring and I, I took it and it was I would say we were late to the curve in if you measure by web3 standards but 2016 I'm glad you had that kind of exposure back then.
1: Well welcome to the community and uh, I think that there is is—it's an exciting space right there's so much Innovation happening, but also it's this interesting mix of different not just functions, but different skill sets, tools, ways of looking at the world. It's it's in crypto, in blockchain, in Web three. You have economics within tokenomics and token design. You have design and organizational design around governance and DAOs, and you also have really hard technological problems. You know around base layer protocols, building whether you're building sort of the application layer one, really thinking about the tooling. There's so much to dig into from these different subject matters that I think it's a really exciting space to be, to operate in.
0: I completely agree. Let's actually talk more about the technological problems. It's a great starting point into your conversation on MENA because MENA solving seemingly simple technological problem of how can you make blockchains more scalable, but you're saying the size, right? And the technology that's underlying this innovation is zero knowledge proofs which I think can be a confusing concept to most people who are just starting out listening and learning about the blockchain. But let's say, I want to put a hypothetical situation, let's say you're back to working at Teach for America, but this time you're, instead of a mathematics teacher, you're a crypto teacher, and you have to teach a class to middle schoolers on how the menu protocol works and how zero knowledge proofs work. How would you explain these concepts and the protocol itself?
1: So that's a great question, and... The way I think about zero knowledge is really it's a technology. It's around how do you share information in a way that doesn't expose sensitive data? How do you verify that something is true without sharing the sensitive information that you want to keep private? The cool thing about zero knowledge is that in many ways, it can be a wrapper around any sort of piece of sensitive information, anything that you want to keep private. And through various innovations that built into how zero knowledge and the technology works, you're allowed to basically prove almost beyond a shadow of a doubt that something is true without having to see the actual piece of data. Now, the way that I would explain it, it's sort of a game, right? So, Aaron, have you, have you played Where's Waldo?
0: Yes. Well, it's really difficult to play. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's not much to play there, but yes, yeah,
1: like, You know, like imagine like as a young kid, like just going through a book of where's Waldo and having to find Waldo. But that's actually a very difficult game to play to players, because when you find Waldo, you have to kind of verify that you've seen it without showing the other person, uh, if they're playing, if they're doing it. And so a way of thinking about this is what if I could prove to you where Waldo was without having to show you where it is on the page? I want to make sure that I keep the secret, but I want you to know that I know where it is. Zero knowledge allows for that. So let's take this example a step further. The way that the actual technology works is something like, if I know where Waldo is, let's say I put, put up a massive white sheet between you and the, the actual pages, and you can't see anything but the sheet, and then I cut a little hole in the sheet, and on the other side, you see a picture of Waldo. Do you know? Do I know where Waldo is? Based on that example, just this example, I just showed you where Waldo is. Let's say you don't believe. Let's say you're like, okay, you were just guessing, you know, that was lucky. I said, okay, and you're like I'm going to turn the pages, put up a blank sheet again, can't see anything, totally opaque and I cut a little hole and I peek open the hole and you see Waldo again. Okay, well you did, you got, you, maybe you're really lucky you did it twice. Let's say I do that a thousand times. I've shown you a thousand times without showing you where on the page because you can only see the little hole I open up that I know where Waldo is. And then at the end of it all, I close the book, I come around the white sheet and I just hand it to you. You have no information on
0: where's Waldo other than I know where it is. So let's talk about how being able to verify any piece of information scales down the size of a blockchain, how would you link those two concepts?
1: Yeah, so I think that's, this is really a nuance of how zero knowledge, um, there's sort of a couple flavors of zero knowledge. So Mina really focuses on ZK Snarks, which is really optimized. I mean, I I think it's one of the most promising technologies, I would say, around privacy, enabling privacy within, um, on the internet. There are, other sort of flavors, but ZK snark and among them, there's another one called ZK Stark. and broadly what ZK allows is it allows both privacy and scalability. And the scalability aspect is linked to the idea that rather than having this ledger that has all the pieces of information about let's go back to the Waldo example, just for a second, like on where's Waldo. What if I just shared with you a proof, which is much smaller in size. That just proves that I know where Waldo is. And so rather than have block ledgers of blocks of massive data, what you can enable is you can have proofs of the state of the data or the state of the ledger and proofs. I mean, particularly in Mina's uh, example, we're going to be able to enable proofs or a blockchain that is the size of essentially a couple tweets, about 22 kilobytes and implicit in that is scalability. And so when we think about ZK as a scaling solution. It really is an architectural shift in how blockchains are constructed while maintaining the security, the privacy, and ultimately the ability to verify all within a blockchain. And so that's what a blockchain like Mina enables.
0: And I'm sure when you have a blockchain that's the size of 24 kilobytes, essentially any phone could store the state of a blockchain. And so it's not just scaling the number of nodes that exist in the network, but also the kinds of nodes, because now you can suddenly have all sorts of ZK apps running on your mobile phone that previously thought wasn't possible.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly that's exactly right. And so there's one of the issues with blockchain now is these blockchains are incredibly heavy. If you look at Ethereum, I think a light node for Ethereum is over 500 gigabytes. And if you wanted to have a full node on Ethereum, it would likely be over you know, over a terabyte. Those are data sizes that ultimately phones at the current state are not enabled to uh, really hold. And so the idea around being able to push a blockchain to the edge necessitates blockchains to be of a size that is manageable on edge computing devices. So I use edge computing devices to be in both your mobile phone, but also IOT or your Tesla. And so the, the idea here is that ultimately the storage size of a blockchain is a limiting factor of the type of computers that can process and act as a node or hold a node within them and a beautiful thing about having a 22 kilobyte blockchain like mina is that it would enable things like edge computing being able to interact seamlessly with a node on your phone dream of true decentralized you know web 3 it really it requires being able to get to the you know the types of computers that the majority of the world has access to. So these aren't massive like mining style rigs, you know, in someone's basement. These are phones, whether they're, you know, your iPhone or an Android or, uh, you know, a smartphone that is in the hands of someone living in, you know, North India or living in West Africa. And so these are things that ultimately, when we think about the distributed and decentralized web, we have to be thinking not only what are we enabling now, but how do we enable broad access given where technology and hardware is.
0: Uh, That's interesting. I remember that this kind of decentralization was the vision that Bitcoin started with. But as mining became more and more difficult, hardware became more and more specialized. And so we kept limiting, going from regular computers that could mine a block to now GPUs and specialized computers and entire farms that are running to mine blocks, right? To make it profitable enough. And such computing would truly open up this whole vision of any kind of device, whether it's a mobile phone or an IoT device that could participate in the network and store the state. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's
1: really exciting to think about what that version of blockchain looks like, because there's this great vision for enabling a lot of economic access or enabling innovation or enabling the sort of things that you envision an internet at scale would look like, you know, that original version of the internet, basically user-owned, decentralized where users actually, you know, control their own data, the version of that to truly exist requires like a level of access that I think is zero knowledge is uniquely capable of providing. And so that's, what's really exciting about, you know, this whole concepts around ZK proofs and, you know, I consider myself a ZK maximalist and not just because I'm at MENA, but also because as a core technology, what it enables is a very interesting proposition for technology going forward.
0: How would you connect Mina protocol to what you do as a the head of finance? Let's start things together in terms of the blockchain stuff we've been talking about and your role in finance.
1: Yeah, so I think it's interesting because I, I look at finance and crypto as being something that can be very broad. And obviously, if you're coming from like an economics degree or a finance degree, there's everything from crypto investing, crypto trading, working at a the application layer like a DAP compound or you know working at a layer 1 or a foundation like meta foundation and then a number of different flavors in between that and so within the world of layer 1s and particularly at meta foundation the role of finance is not only it's interesting because it's it's sort of all the stuff you would think of as a at a startup so you know everything from cash management budgeting payments fundraising all the stuff that you kind of, you would expect to think of as in a like head of finance or in the finance department, but then it's blockchain. So, you know, we have a pretty sizable delegation or staking program. We have a massive token based treasury that we have to manage. We have a pretty large and growing grants program that is all critical to the, the MENA ecosystem and critical to sort of the overall sort of success of the protocol. And all of that is encompassed within the finance function. And so I think there's so much more to the finance within the blockchain world, while also having all of the elements of finance at a startup.
0: Well, I understand the corporate finance portions, and it would be really helpful to do investment banking or private equity to prepare you for those financial aspects of a job in Web3. But What would be good ways of preparing for treasury management or handling grants programs, those things that are specifically crypto native? What experience would prepare someone to tackle those issues?
1: Yeah, so I think there's, so those are two different spaces. Like treasury management is very much, it is, there's treasury management at corporations, there's treasury management at hedge funds, there's treasury management at investment firms and also at layer ones and, and blockchain companies. And the idea is that you have a sizable amount of assets that are relatively liquid or fully liquid with which you need to design a strategy that optimizes return while minimizing risk. And so the way to think about that is ultimately the same investment skill set that you would work as a private equity professional or a hedge fund professional, but the risk return profile is different. And the, the assets you're looking at have a a much different volatility. So in the case of a a blockchain or crypto company where, you know, some amount of the treasury would likely be in the native token or in a, a token of some sort. And so, managing that takes a level of foresight and understanding around what, like, overall market trends, what are overall industry trends, what are your specific business needs are in terms of cash flow or token outflow, and then all layer over that general understanding of macro environment, which is broadly the same thing I would say to someone who's going into thinking about being at a hedge fund or going into doing your private equity. And so, maybe my bias is I worked, I've been an investor for most of my career, so. I, when I think of treasury management, I think mostly of the like investment management and the the management of assets to achieve the right risk return profile based on the needs and strategy of your business. With grants, it's slightly different because the idea around MENA foundation, like one of our roles is to serve and empower the MENA ecosystem. And so when we think about serving and empowering an ecosystem, that's where grants comes like squarely into the strategy. So our grants program is pretty broad based we do both retroactive and prospective grants and we have to think about how to map the strategy of what we envision or like would love to promote around the protocol around what do others in the community or in the broader crypto world what projects or contributions do they want to bring into the ecosystem and so there's this mapping this interesting mapping that happens and, and it's actually interesting because a lot of the things that we think of oh this would be really cool to if someone was building we often are really excited to find a community member who's already working on it or who has already started tinkering around it. And so I think there's a really interesting rule for someone with an economics background, who's really interested in sort of strategy as well, to be in a, this position of really matching what is essentially like grants as capital allocating across different projects. And you get a lot, really good exposure to a variety of projects happening within the, the blockchain space, and meet Mita's example within the Mita ex- ecosystem.
0: With these two examples, treasury management and grants program, it seems like there's a split where treasury management seems to be tying more into investing. How are you allocating a pool of assets that is semi-liquid or completely liquid to, as you said, optimize returns and minimize risk? And then the second side is grants programs, which seems to be more strategic. How would you allocate, again, a pool of assets to incentivize developers to create something that furthers your strategic vision, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, that obviously this is all from the perspective of somebody who's coming with more of an economics or finance bent. There are other aspects to all of these that, um, you know, are more operational or more systems and people design, like organizational design. But beyond that, I think there's some interesting sort of aspects of these two examples, treasury management and managing grants programs that could be really interesting to someone coming from an economics degree at Princeton.
0: Right. We've been talking about Different industries from a surface level, specifically banking, private equity, and crypto. And you've also had experience with teaching across these four industries. How would you compare the different work cultures? And how would you reason about the biggest differences in work cultures between Wall Street and crypto? Is it actually that big?
1: Yeah. So maybe I can focus more on like Wall Street and crypto because I think there's this maybe this trope that, you know, at some point was true, but is less and less true that like wall street and crypto are oppositional forces but ultimately one i would argue that these two worlds are converging and ultimately i would argue that a lot of the problems are the things that wall street is trying to solve if you think back to the days of even before jp morgan back to like traders in venice like the idea around we're creating an intermediary that like actually provides value and solves real problems that are often financial or value-based problems. And both crypto and Wall Street do that just in varying ways and in like vastly different ways, obviously like cryptos around designed around blockchain technologies around decentralization, mostly public ledgers, at least in the case of a blockchain or a protocol like Mina, But the idea around, if you take it at the most abstract level, what these systems are doing are actually pretty similar. And so then if you take to the culture, sure. okay, what's the the culture of Wall Street versus the culture of blockchain? I mean, if we take it back, blockchain is a technology, a lot of these layer ones or dApps or technology companies are fundamentally startups. It's the difference of you know, Wall Street and startups. And so I think that's a distinction that most people are acutely aware of at, You in know, 2022. I think they're just vastly different in terms of like what your day-to-day looks like. You know, I, I can't really speak to the culture of like firms that I haven't worked at but I think if you think about the difference of the culture of a bank or an investment bank or a Facebook maybe Facebook's a bad example because that's a large company think of a small startup that's kind of the difference they're massive institutions versus 30 percent foundations that that are 50 percent developer like these are just massively different
0: organizations do you feel that the way Wall Street has been portrayed recently ever since Bitcoin was launched essentially do you worry that might my- happen at some point with crypto just by nature of companies growing in size or do you feel that decentralization as a technology itself will prevent that kind of a villainization happening?
1: My real answer is I don't know. Uh, If I was going to say like what does decentralization solve with respect to the things that are generally problematic in society I can speak to that. I think that the internet provided access but then it felt like the value was not spread evenly across users and builders, owners, and investors. And like that dynamic frankly has existed throughout investing or capitalist investing where there's just a split of the how value gets distributed across the users, the workers, the owner, and the investors. And so it's less around, I think, this idea of like villainization or not villainization or things getting bigger or not. It's just how is value, and I say value, not to almost like the largest idea of value, How does it get distributed across all the stakeholders who participate in an ecosystem? And so in the case of blockchain, and let's take true web three companies versus like web two companies that serve blockchain, let's talk about three. A lot of the design in like tokenomics or a lot of the design in governance and voting power and participation is designed towards trying to address this problem of how does value get distributed and how does, who gets to own the web? And so the idea around, we say decentralized, It's not just the nodes, it's the value and the way that we participate and true ownership. And so I think what we're offering is not necessarily this fight against villainization or not. It's like a really high promising solution for the issue of value distribution may look like. It may not be perfect, but by a design, it's a really interesting idea. And specifically, I think that what we're doing at Mina is a really interesting take on how to solve this fundamental issue of privacy element and the scaling element of blockchain. Now, I wasn't around in Web1. You know, I was a kid, but fundamentally Web1 was very hard to interact with and it was clunky and there wasn't a lot of tooling it had a lot of promise the design of email was ultimately proved to be like one of the greatest innovations out of what won that and like HTTPS and a few others like the different protocols that you don't see that kind of exist in the back of everyday software we use that ultimately are just computers keep speaking to each other are designed along a certain protocol or a certain super highway. that idea of these, super highways that exist in the background that allow for some value transfer. And again, I'm using often value not like in a financial system, but like the value of I need to send a message to my friend who's in San Francisco from New York, I could do mail or I could do email and email obviously provides me a lot more value in terms of how I, how quickly and how effectively I can get a message across that idea around web one was really great, but ultimately not very well monetized and. We have this new software or this new technology and and protocols like, you know, Mina where fundamentally this is a super highway that allows for private data transaction, really private verification of some state of true or false. And that as a tool interspersed across the broader internet of different computers or people trying to verify like an API key or a password or your credit score or what have you. That's a very powerful sort of protocol or super highway to have amidst all of these other technologies that exist out there.
0: I see. So the super highway you're talking about from Mina is this notion of value that goes beyond financial and just the value of being able to verify certain pieces of information, right?
1: Exactly. It opens different ways of interacting electronically. I'm talking about that transfer of some piece of it, the verification of some piece of information. And so often when computers like, talk to each other, or let's even take it outside the computer stage, let's say for an everyday person, if you need to go, did you rent an apartment in uh, New York, Arian?
0: I will be renting one soon.
1: Okay. So let me talk to you through renting an apartment in New York. First off, it's a crap. It's like a crapshoot. It's like a process. You have to see a bunch of apartments. Maybe you love one, maybe you don't. If you apply to it, you got to get all this piece of paperwork, your bank statement, your credit score, they have to pull basically everything from your files and you give it over to a broker who you just met maybe the day before and they say, thank you, we'll call you. It's a crap experience. And it's also a very sort of risky experience embedded in like sharing sensitive information. What a broker or a landlord is just trying to do is verify that you're going to pay and they have different pieces of data that they're looking for that basically sum up and say, yeah, you're credit worthy. I'm willing to have a sign a lease with you or no, you're not. Zero-knowledge enables, in in many ways, a way to verify that your credit score is above, call it 650, you make over 50K a year, you um, have graduated from Princeton. All of these items that ultimately is just a true-false statement that someone's trying to verify, that is what zero-knowledge provides.
0: I see. So when you said the way we interact, it was more like, let's say I was looking for an apartment in New York. The way I would be looking for apartments would still be the same, but the protocol that's being used for verification inside is going to be different. And so the way computers interact with each other or verify pieces of information, or in this case, the way the broker verifies a piece of information would be changing. And that's the value add that Mina protocols adding, right? Correct. And
1: I think that's the unlock for a lot of blockchain and crypto. There are some subsets of blockchain that are very much UI fit. Based, like NFTs, metaverse, things that you're actually interacting or seeing with your eyes. There's a lot of blockchain that is just rules around how computers interact that is openly verifiable because most of it's open source, distributed. So no one person or one node can basically change the rules without permission. And trusting in those rules, these computers interact with no one really having to say, hey, you know, do this, do that. A lot of it, at least from design of like a smart contract-based platform like Mina is done through a contract that has specific rules. And so I think that the real unlock for me as I was learning about crypto was less like trying to feel like it, feel and touch it, but more understanding how is this changing? Like how does changing the way that this piece of information is shared or verified, or in the case of a zero knowledge proof, how does that allow for certain interactions that may be hard today to be simplified? So the way that it impacts you is, Perhaps just getting an apartment in New York requires fewer steps because there's a zero knowledge based application that is now a company that has basically created a zero knowledge application that allows you to keep all the information on your server, or on your phone. And it, through a series of zero knowledge circuits, verifies that, hey, all this information is true. Maybe they have an also like a opinion to some state database or to some credit database, but it's not pulling the underlying information. And because the code is open and it's decentralized, you can verify that the code does not pull the information via the smart contract and it shares it and says, you're creditworthy. It makes your life a lot easier because you don't have to pull all this information to get an apartment and you're not worried about 13 different brokers in New York having your information sitting on a laptop that's five years old that they might leave on a, in a ca- cafeteria. These are the things that you don't quite see with blockchain and crypto, and particularly with something like zero knowledge, that ultimately is the value that the technology provides.
0: I'm honestly a bit sad that you're still not teaching because if you were (laughs) teaching all this stuff, you'd be doing a really good job. I want to tie in one specific element of financing that was on my mind earlier. We talked about tokens and how uh, they're changing the landscape from Web 2 to Web 3, but I want to flip the question from the company's perspective and how they finance things. Could you give a high-level overview of how tokens have changed the way corporate Finance plays out, whether that's M and A deals or venture fundraising, etc. And maybe give an example of how deals are structured now, including tokens and cash.
1: Yeah, so I think I can talk more from the perspective of like how do tokens affect the deal environment? You know, whether it's VC or a hedge fund or private equity, you're still, you're making an investment, and ultimately you're deploying that capital, and you're purchasing either the rights to or the actual assets of various items in a company. So. It could be I buy shares of something. I buy a you know a debt instrument where like I put money in and then I'm owed interest on it. I could buy preferred equity, which is just equity with like a little bit less risky, a little bit more liquidation preferences. Yeah, exactly. Um, these are, all of these are just different instruments that have been applied to how you can invest in an asset or in a, a company or a project even, and tokens is just another instrument that's been added to the pool of items that you can work with. And so I would say that the same way that someone thinks about warrants or preferred stock or some more esoteric instruments that might exist, tokens is a relatively new instrument, but ultimately it's an instrument that has its own economics defined as the tokenomics, its own sort of level of distribution, its own risk and the way you think about it might be slightly different than the tool set you use to look at a bond. But ultimately you're thinking about, okay, what is what does this thing do? Is that valuable to me? And is it valuable in the context of this overall deal?
0: How do tokens play out as an instrument and what's the value that people are capturing when they're buying a set of tokens? So
1: I guess it's really hard to explain the techonomics of general techonomics because every it's like, what's the value of this piece of preferred equity? I was like, what's the deal? I'm like, what's the company? What's the deal? What are they selling? What do they make? Are they operational? Are they cash flow positive? Do they have customers? And so it's a little bit, it's like a little bit of a nebulous question of the value is underlying whatever the tokenomics is. I think that from the perspective of a lot of the early VCs who looked at the space and a lot now even. There's this idea of like participation and participation in the ecosystem and the ultimate like promise of not even promise. It's like this like idea or like opportunity to create a broader ecosystem that has value and that will accrue to some portion of the participants that like are in that ecosystem. And so the idea for an investor, like investing in a a cap table that includes tokens is they're like ultimately choosing... I want to participate in this ecosystem because I think this ecosystem will generate value. And the idea is that if it generates enough value, the value should accrue to the users. And I am a participant and I am a user in the ecosystem. Does does that make sense?
0: Yes, totally. So when you're buying tokens, you're buying a chunk of that ecosystem, growing the ecosystem together because then the tokens accrue value towards the token holders, which you would also be one of the people.
1: The idea around like tokens being this way to participate in the ecosystem, it's important to emphasize that because these technologies ultimately have a lot of promise, but they're relatively new. And fundamentally, the second and third order things that are built off of like these layer ones will be even more exciting than the layer ones are now. And so participating in the design and the like build around what like a zero knowledge based protocol will look like Is in a very, particularly for a technologist, is a very interesting
0: prospect. Hmm, That makes sense. I'd like to pivot the conversation to a question that I ask to all the guests that I interview, and that's just general advice for Gen Zers interested in Web3. And I want to split it up into two questions. One, from a finance perspective, people who are interested in finance and Web3, any advice for them? And second, to a specific question on business school, but I'll jump to that in a second. Do you have any advice for Gen Zers, finance economics majors, or high schoolers, or young professionals that are interested in Web3 from a finance perspective? Yeah,
1: I do. You have a long career. Spend some of it doing some stuff that you don't really love doing, but do it anyway because you'll get really good and that whatever skill you're learning will just be really useful for the rest of your life. And then, Spend some of your career just trying to cover whatever needs that you have, whether it's basic needs your family needs, wherever you came from, maybe you have a need for what have it. Just make sure that some of that gets met and then spend some of your career just doing something you absolutely love and get to go. Like you won't, you won't be happy every day. You won't, it's not like it will be like without problems, but do something that you truly love and that gets you excited. That mix can be whatever mix you want, whether it's first half, first third, do this, second third, do this, third, third, do that, or mix it up and have a mixed bag along the way. But coming from economics, you know, at a school like Princeton, at a school like Duke, we're exposed by nature to kind of what the folks did the five, 10, 20 years before us, but we don't really get exposure to what the world will be looking like five, 10, 20 years from now. And so if you design your career around really like getting good skills, making sure you cover your basic needs. And then making sure that you like love what you do getting up every day, whether it's functionally or like the actual content of your work, then chances are wherever we are in 10, 20 years, you'll be pretty happy doing what you're doing. And that can be any size industry, any size company, any sort of stage, but in any sort of role. But if you do that, I think you'll get it right.
0: I'm sure the difficult part now is to figure out which skills to actually acquire. And that's the question most of us are trying to answer a second piece of this question that I wanted to ask was on business school versus self-learning. This industry has been leaning towards not really acquiring conventional paths like two years of X, two years of Y, that private equity investment banking generally do. So for anyone who's considering business school or graduate school, what would be advice towards self-learning versus going to one of these more structured paths? Bit of a tough question. No, it's
1: actually, I think it's a great question. My advice is that you should be self-learning now, like regardless of what you're doing, if you're interested, there is so much more material to dive into on the Web3 space than there was even two years ago. And way more than when I first like came around this space when I was at Stanford. And so the plethora of information, it's almost you have to kind of structure how you're taking in information now versus like, I'll just trying to take, take in everything. But, you know, self-learning is one of those things where it's, If you make self-learning a passion, regardless of your career, you're going to do really great. And knowledge is a very valuable thing to have, and particularly knowledge as it compounds on itself. You know, after spending five years following the industry, you have a sense of how things have changed. You've seen a couple cycles. You understand a little bit more about who the players are, what the projects that have been successful, why they've been successful. And then add another five years to that, and you're an industry expert. The idea around business school is, I don't think it's vastly different than self-learning, at least by design of the, my experience, it was self-learning. It was just self-learning with other people who kind of were interested in learning the same thing I wanted to. There was a lot more community building. And and you know, I mentioned earlier in the show, like a lot of people that my, were my first exposure to Web3 as an industry, not Web3 as a concept, not as a token that I bought on Coinbase and didn't know what it did, as an industry were classmates of mine at Stanford. And as I look now, you know, some years later, a lot of the people that are within my network, there are many more of my classmates who are now firmly in Web3, whether it's minting NFTs or launching a blockchain PC or, you know, working at one of the larger Web3 companies in the space. Like, there are, it's, Business school is almost like this accelerator and in that you're accelerating your community. And if you think about like blockchain and crypto as broadly, like these community of actors that operate together in a decentralized way, having more nodes within that community is supremely valuable. And <laughs> that's where business one's of super, super value is like, in many ways, you probably experienced this at Princeton. Like you have people who you've spent time in the library with late at night, but also met up at a bar and, you know, and spent way too much time at the bar with them. And now they're really good friends and they're going to go on to X industry. And then in two years, you're going to have a question about that industry and you'll call them up. It's the same idea. and um, I, I think that from the perspective of self-learning, business school is like a really great way to coordinate self-learning for a lot of like really incredible and passionate people.
0: Yeah, that's a great analogy. Any last thoughts or ways that people can get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so I would say definitely look up what we're doing up in MENA. Check out minaprotocol.com. It has a bunch of information about the cool things that are happening with the project. I think that generally, I would encourage people to read about zero knowledge, understand you know what it means as a technology, what its sort of potential applications are. I think it's a really exciting uh, space. With it, if you're like a technologist, it's a super exciting space to be looking at. And then broadly, like it's important to remember that broadly thinking about the blockchain, Web three, crypto space is. These are a series of technologies that have compounded them upon themselves to enable like a new iteration of te- of technologies. And one of them being sort of distributed ledger and another being smart contract. And the next iterations around, whether it's decentralized finance or non-fungible tokens or distributed organizations or DAOs, whether it's metaverse or, or zero knowledge, these are all technologies or technological applications that are distinct in their own sort of Application, but also in their what they mean and what they they offer to um, the broader world. And so, if you find a place that you're just like, oh, I'm super interested in this aspect of crypto, go in, like, just learn a lot about that, learn about a lot about ZK and then understand what that is. And there's so much to dig in there, and it's in it, itself its own technological innovation that I would just kind of encourage us not to sort of, you know, we say Web3 and we group a bunch of things that are happening all at once, but like they're all great things. But if you peel back the onion, you really start to understand like how cool the spaces and how many different interesting new toolings or way of doing things are actually blooming at the moment.
0: That's great advice. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been lovely having you on the show. Thanks so much.
1: Right. Aaron, it's been really great. Thanks for having me.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, you can actually collect our conversation as an NFT by going to mirror.xyz web3genz.eat. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next week with another guest.